Well, good evening. You're very welcome. My name is Declan Fismorris, and this is a talk on philosophy and the true use of the mind. Now, the school being the school of practical philosophy, and this being a talk on the use of the mind, what would be very good is if you could observe the mind in action in the course of the talk and just see what happens. It will help a lot when we're looking at the various aspects and functions and how the mind works. Apart from attending the talk, and however good or otherwise it may be, you can still observe the mind in action because that's really what we're, we're looking at. Is that okay? Now, to know anything about the true use of anything, we'd need to know a lot about it, wouldn't we? We'd need to know what the thing is, where it is, whose it is, how it works, what its nature is, its potential, and, and all this. We'd need to know something about that in order to make use of it. If we had a gadget like this, and we were to make the best use of it, you couldn't just pick it up and start hammering in a nail or something with it, because it's a microphone, it's not a hammer. So we need to understand quite a bit about this to make the true use of it. Is that fair? So what we're going to do is we're going to have a look at the mind and see what it's made up of and the different aspects of it. One of the first things that arises when we're looking at the mind is, what is it? My friend Mick, whenever we were driving anywhere together, and if he was driving at some speed and a particularly big blue bottle would hit the windscreen, Mick would point to the remains on the glass and say, Hey, Deck, you see that blue bottle there? And I'd say, Yes, Mick. And he'd say, What do you think the last thing to go through his mind was? And I'd say, I don't know, Mick. And Mick would always say, His backside. <laughs> and I always laughed. It's actually very useful because it highlights this first question, what is it? Now obviously he was talking about the fly's brain if they have such a thing. And sometimes we think that mind and brain are the same thing. But are they? That's the relationship between mind and brain. To illustrate this we're going to do a little experiment. Now if I said to you all, to just be very quiet for a moment, and just listen and see if there's any music in the room. What would you think? No music in the room. No. You'd all agree that there's no music in the room. Okay, now, if I take my little... and turn on my little radio. Now would you say there's any music in the room? There is, so everybody's nodding. And I will turn my little radio off again. Now is there any music in the room? Is there not? Ah, right, so we get a different answer now. There is music, but we just can't hear it. What's the relationship between music and the radio? Where does the music come from? Does the music come from the radio? If I take my hammer and smash up the little radio here, which I won't do because it was about 20 euro, if I were to smash up this little radio, what would I have done to the music? Absolutely nothing. Because you can't smash up music with a, a hammer. Because music and radio are different. I can certainly damage the radio with a hammer because the radio was a physical thing and so was the hammer. But music isn't quite the same. Radio is a little bit like the brain and music is a little bit like mind. And in the same way that music comes through the radio, the proposition is that mind comes through the brain. We need a radio for music to manifest or to be heard. Similarly, we need a brain in order for the mind to express. 
But just because something happens, the brain doesn't necessarily mean that something has happened to the mind. There is in Russia a place called the Moscow Brain Institute. And in the Moscow Brain Institute, there is room 19. And in room 19, in 31,000 slices, is Lenin's brain. What Russia did, what Mother Russia did, because uh, they missed Lenin so much when he died and felt he had such an incredible mind to steer the course of the, the continent and hold all these various nations together for so long, they decided to study his brain so they could find out something about this great mind that had such an impact on Russia and the world. So they sliced it up and they studied it for 40 years in incredible detail. At the end of the 40 years, the chief researcher, when asked what they had discovered about the mind of Lenin, he said, absolutely nothing. What they discovered was that it was just a brain. And they knew nothing at all about the mind of Lenin. The reason for that is mind and brain are two totally separate things in the same way as music and radio are. We'll draw a little diagram here of the human being. And the first thing we notice about the human being is it's, it's physical, so there is a body. So we'll, we'll draw a body here. To form the full picture of the human being, there's body and there's mind. So I have to put mind somewhere on the diagram. Now, if I were to ask you, where is the music in the room, what would you say? It's all around. Even if I turn on the radio and the music is coming out of the radio, where would you point if I said, show me the music? You kind of point here, but you know it's not here. I mean, if, if I bring the radio or bring it anywhere in the room, I'll still pick up the signal and we'll get the music. So similarly, if somebody's a little bit cuckoo or out of their mind, as we would say, we kind of point up here and say they're a bit... So for the diagram, I'm going to show mind up here. But just bear in mind that mind, being a subtle thing, doesn't really have a physical location. But for the diagram, we'll show it here. And now to complete the picture, there would be one other aspect of a human being that we ought to put up just so that we have a full diagram here. We would often say a human being is made up of body, mind and... Spirit or soul or... Okay, spirit. Where will I show that? <laughs> Body, mind and heart, somebody said. Yeah? Put these both down then. Where would you say the heart is? This is the emotional heart and not the physical heart. Not when you feel happy or sad. Is there a location for that? Not really, because it's not a physical thing. And only physical things have physical locations. If your heart is broken, you might, you might do something like this. So we'll, we'll show the heart here. And now there is this thing called spirit. Where are we going to show that? I'll just put it here. It will come together a little bit when we look closely at the mind. With some idea now that mind is a subtle thing, and it's very much related to the brain and that aspect of the body, another question would be, whose is it? Is it mine? Is it me? So if, for example, we take the body, and somebody said to you, are you your body, what would you say? You say no, but you're not, you're not sure? It's not such an easy question. If somebody said, are you your car? What would you say? You say, no, don't be silly. I use my car to get around. So if somebody says, are you your body? Some of us would say yes, and some of us would say no. So I'm not sure, I'm kind of, I'm kind of my body. And this would be an important question, because the same question would apply to body, mind, and heart. Are they me, or are they mine? 
so if you cut your fingernails, for example, you don't think you're somehow less of a person, even though some of your body has now been snipped away, or you get a haircut. There's a book called The Proper Care and Feeding of Husbands. <laughs> Ladies always laugh at that and that men always squirm because it kind of labels them as being just things that you have to use and nourish and kind of treat gently and sweetly to get the best out of them. The same might apply to body and mind. You say there's the proper care and feeding of a body. Well, there would be, and there would be of a car and everything else. And yes, we sometimes get a little bit mixed up. We do get identified with the body. I could say, for example, somebody ran into the back of me last week. Or I could say I broke down on the motorway. Now, you would know what I'm talking about, but and yes, it's as if I actually broke down on the motorway. My wife got an MOT last week. And she passed, and she has a little disc and everything, she's very happy. She would talk about it like that. That's because we sometimes become identified with things that we have. Now, if we can do that to our car, if we can become identified to our car, imagine what we can do to our body. Because we say, am I looking well today, or am I looking tired? Now, it's just the body that looks well, or looks tired, and yet we say, I'm looking well, or I'm looking tired. We can do the same to the mind. If we think of a little funny thought or a, or a joke or a clever idea, we say, oh, I thought of that. When the mind came up with it or remembered it, we claim it and attach ourselves to it and think it's us. And this is a big mistake. It's also not true. And lots of the scriptures will tell us this. Christ in the Sermon on the Mount says, which of you by taking thought can add one cubit to his stature? So what he's saying is no matter how many philosophy classes you go to, how many letters after your name you get, you still won't be any bigger. All you're doing is maybe refining the mind a little bit. But no matter how refined the mind may be, it doesn't make any difference to you. And the reason that is so is because it's not you. In the same way, if I polish up my car and clean it out, it doesn't make a jot of difference to me. The car is looking better, but I'm totally unaffected. Now, to illustrate this a little bit better, we're going to look at the nature of things in these different categories. So if we take car, for example, and we take a car as being something that a lot of people have and can use and a certain function and purpose and nature, would you say a car has a particular nature? So it's, it's designed to get you from A to B at a certain speed or a certain degree of comfort. Transport, yeah. So the nature of a car is something to do with transport and you might have some little differences. Some may go cross-country and some can take a lot of people and all sorts of things there. What about potential? Would you say your car has potential? Have you ever taken your car up to its full potential on the N7 or something? Have you? Well, you know something about potential, don't you? That it can hold a certain number of people and it can go at a certain speed. That's potential. And what about function? What would you say the function of a car is? Get you from A to B. What about the aim of a car? Would you say a car has an aim in life? Now you're laughing because of course a car doesn't have an aim in life or a purpose in life. A car just waits there for me, for the driver. And whatever my aim is, that's what the car is used for. So the aim or purpose goes with the owner. 
car won't suddenly decide tomorrow morning it wants to go to Cork or something like that. It, it'll wait for you to get in and decide what to do and where to go and how to use it. Now, would you say the same applies to a bicycle or a radio or a microphone? That it would have a nature and it would have a certain potential. This microphone might pick up somebody within a couple of feet, but might not pick up somebody in, in the next room. What about the function? Would you say a microphone and a radio and they have function they have, and it's easy to identify. What about the aim? Would you say this microphone has an aim in life? Not at all. The aim or purpose doesn't go with the instrument. The aim or purpose goes with the owner or the driver, whoever's in charge. And that's universally true of all instruments. Now, if we're proposing that the body is an instrument, would the same apply? Could we speak a little bit about the nature of the body? We could, very easily, and similarly the potential. We've just had the Olympics and all these bodies and in all sorts of disciplines are striving to achieve their potential. What about the function of the body, the human body? What would you say that is? You would say things like to reproduce or to survive. You say things like that. And with regard to the aim or purpose, does the body have an aim in life? No, and quite rightly, because it's an instrument. The aim or purpose of the body goes with whoever owns it, who happens to be me. So this evening, the aim or purpose was to head down to Kilkenny. So a lot happened, including the body moving in certain ways, in certain directions, to be here for half seven. So once again, the aim or purpose goes with whoever owns it. What about the mind? Could we say something about the nature of the mind? But we're going to look at that in a minute. It's a quite a big area. What about the potential? Would you say you have the capacity to speak Greek, for example, that the, the mind could learn that? It certainly could. It can't do it now, but you know you could if you applied the mind to it. Is that right? Or if you're stumped by a particular crossword, you might know that if the mind applied itself enough to it, you might resolve it, you might get it out. All that would come under potential. What about the function? What would you say the function of the mind is? Processed thoughts, yeah. Now what about the aim or purpose? Does the mind have an aim in life? Or it being an instrument, should it serve the aim of the owner? Like every good instrument should. Now the mind can be a bit tricky because it kind of has a life of its own that, that the others don't have and it can sometimes generate its own aims and sidetrack us. But we can forget what it's all about. So to look a little bit at the nature of the mind, there are three particular aspects that I would propose. The first being discursive mind. There's a Sanskrit word, manas. Now discursive mind is probably that aspect of mind for some of you here that is chattering away internally now that nobody else can hear. That's saying, oh, this is good or this isn't good or I thought I was coming to something else, or what's on the telly, or I must remember that. You know that sort of little thing that goes on in the mind where it's discursive. There's a lot of chat, a lot of activity and movement. Nobody else knows, only you. A lot of opinions. It can do an awful lot of work. If we say, for example, I wonder could we rearrange the room a little bit because this isn't quite the best layout. How do you think we should rearrange the room? Well, straight away, discursive mind will say, well, actually, if we rearrange the chairs that way and put you there, 
that the light is here. Is that okay? Or if we say something like, do you think we should redecorate? There's a lot of green in here. Straight out of the way, the mind will start matching colors and shapes and shades. and That's discursive mind. Now, examples of discursive mind. I'll, I'll give you one here. It's a little quiz. Now, if anybody knows this little quiz, just keep it to yourself for a minute. So I'm going to draw a picture on the flip chart here, and I want you to tell me what it is. All right? And as I do this, I want you to watch the mind in action. Just see what happens in the mind, how it moves, how it responds, what its state is. All right? So if I draw a picture like this, a couple of circles and a couple of lines, I, I want to know what is that. So what's happening in the mind? Association. Association. So f fire them out there. What, what might it be? Could be a wheel of a car. All right. What else could it be? Could be a Friday. Could be a. Could be a donut. Could be a CD. Cup and saucer. All right. You see what's happening in the mind now. The mind doesn't know what the right answer is, but it's tossing up every possible solution. And it would do that very, very well for a long time. But it doesn't know what the right answer is, and it doesn't have the capacity to know what the right answer is. Now, what's the state of the mind when you're trying to figure that out? Is it calm and quiet and relaxed, or is it busy and active? It's busy and active, so you recognize that. Okay. Now, I'm going to tell you what it is, and what I want you to do then is watch what happens in the mind. Okay? What that is a picture of is actually a Mexican riding a bicycle. All right? So that, oh yeah. What happens in the mind when that suggestion is proposed? What happens? Yeah, and is it the right answer? Well, it makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah? What happens in the mind? What's the state of the mind when that right answer is proposed? Is it still active and busy? Or does it fall still and quiet? It's not searching for an answer anymore, sure it's not. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to do another one. And again, watch what happens here. Now, what's that one? Two Mexican writers. That didn't take very long. Now, discursive mind didn't waste its time with donuts and CDs and sunrises from the North Pole and all that sort of stuff. It can do a lot of association and do it very quickly. So what has happened is the discursive mind worked hard here, didn't know the right answer. But when the right answer was proposed, something in the mind registered it. And down here, a similar picture, the discursive mind says straight away, oh yeah, this is what it probably is, this is what it could be, it could be this, makes sense. But it has to refer it to some other aspect of mind to get a decision. And that aspect of mind is the reason or the intellect part of the mind. Now, if I do a totally different picture here, one that doesn't have circles and lines in it, what does the mind do here? There's no Mexicans in this one. So what's happening in the mind right now? It's working. It's back to discursive mind, trying to figure it out, and there's probably a couple of conversations and all sorts of things going on. Well, that's discursive mind. And the bit that makes the decision is intellect. Or reason. There's a, a Sanskrit word that some of you may have come across, which is buddhi. So intellect or reason is that aspect of mind which determines the measure of truth in something. If I ask a very direct question like, is that shape there a perfect circle? What happens in the mind? 
What's the response? The response is no, it's clearly not a perfect circle. Did that take a lot of work? That's because this was instantly referred to the intellect or the reason. And intellect or reason, comparing it to what it knows a perfect circle is, says no, they're different. And it doesn't take very long. That aspect of mind is intellect or reason, and discursive mind does all the work. The analysis and the comparison and the suggestions and the options. But it can't decide. What would happen if we went shopping with discursive mind only and didn't bring intellect or reason? What would our shopping experience be like? Yeah, I wouldn't make any decisions. So you could buy nothing or you could buy loads of things and the things that you'd buy would probably be the wrong things and you'd be rehearsing the conversation you're going to have with the sales assistant on the way home for when you bring them back. That's what happens when you just bring discursive mind with you. Not a lot of use on his own. He needs to refer it to something. And the reason he needs to refer it to another aspect of mind is because this being a number of aspects of mind, they can't all be sovereign, they can't be in charge. Only one aspect of mind can be sovereign or in charge. That's critical and it applies to any team or group or company. Somebody has to be in charge and you have to know who it is, otherwise there's chaos. The best salesmen know this. What would a, a very sharp salesman often say when they're trying to sell something, if they called to a shop or an office. I had a phone call once from a very straight-talking uh, salesman who didn't waste his breath. He just rang up. I don't forget what he was trying to sell, but he said, can I speak to the decision-maker, please? Because he knew that was the only way anything was going to happen. He knew exactly where to go. The best aliens know this. What do aliens always say when they land? Take me to your leader. Yes, they don't want to waste time with discursive mind chatting and yapping all day, they want to go straight for whoever's in charge. And intellect or reason is in charge. Now why is intellect or reason in charge, or why should it be in charge? The reason is, if it's treated properly, it's never wrong. You will not be able to convince yourself that that's a perfect circle when intellect or reason tells you it's not. You might be driving somewhere, and somebody's beside you saying, you're lost, I know you're lost, you know you're lost, don't you? You might deny it, say, no, I know exactly where I'm going, but you know, you're absolutely crystal clear, you haven't a clue where you are. And intellect or reason won't let you do that. It won't let you admit to something that's wrong. So if you're playing golf and the ball goes behind the, the bushes and you take about seven swipes and you come out and you declare one for your scorecard, you still know, and you'll always know it was seven. Now, if it doesn't know, intellect won't let you pretend either. Well, it won't let you fool yourself. You may outwardly let on that you know. So if you go into a shop, sometimes you might have a bag in your hand and you take out a pile of change. The item you're buying costs, say, £4.76. And the sales assistant there with the till takes out £10.26 and says, there's your 5.50 change. And there's a big queue behind you and you have to move on. And you just don't know what's happened. You don't know whether it's right or wrong. You can't figure it out. Discursive mind isn't working properly, it's not doing the processing, it's probably confused and talking to itself and saying, well, what happened here in the cheek of him and who's behind me and how much was that? But intellect or reason isn't able to say whether what just happened is right or wrong. And it won't let you accept that what has happened is right or wrong until it's sure. So intellect or reason will tell you if something is true, it will also tell you if something is untrue, and if it doesn't know, it will say, I don't know. The problem is, there's another aspect of mind that will let on it knows. 
And this aspect of mind is a real devil and causes a lot of trouble. What would you say that aspect is? It would be ego. And to give an example, I was watching a program with my wife, I think it was The Extras or some, some comedy on TV with Ricky Gervais. And in the show, one of the other characters said to Ricky Gervais, tell us a joke. So Ricky Gervais said, that his character said, okay, 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 what's E.T. short for? And the other guy says, I don't know, and Ricky Gervais says, because he's only got little legs. And at that, my wife fell off the couch laughing. Now, I'm the funny one in my house, and she normally doesn't get jokes as quickly as I do, but for some reason she got that one. Now, I pretended to laugh as well. But I didn't get the joke. I knew I hadn't a clue what this joke was about. But she knew. And yet I pretended. Why did I pretend? I didn't want to be shown up. I didn't want to be the one to not get the joke. Now it's not discursive mind doing that, and it's not intellect. It's this aspect called ego, which identifies and claims and attaches itself to things. And there's a very heavy price to pay. I'll give you a little puzzle. Are you up for a little puzzle? Just out of interest, does anybody get that joke? Yeah? Does anybody not get the joke? Now sometimes if most people get the joke and some people don't, they just won't own up. But it is funny. The puzzle is, and watch what happens with these three aspects of mind when I give you this puzzle. This is the sock puzzle. So the situation is, you're going out for the night. You have to dress up and there's a kind of a semi-formal. So you have to get dressed and the taxi's waiting and your spouse is ready to go and you're in a bit of a hurry because you were home late. So you have to get dressed and you're pretty much ready except for your socks and your shoes. So you have to put your socks on and your wardrobe consists of a sock drawer and includes a sock drawer and you've got six pairs of white and you've got six pairs of black socks. These are the socks that are in your sock drawer. Now, you're in a hurry, she's waiting downstairs, the taxi's beeping, you're a little bit late, you don't have time to mess around, you have to get dressed quickly. So you go upstairs into your sock drawer, to turn on the light over the sock drawer to get the socks. Now this sock drawer is just full of all these loose socks. You just want a matching pair. But when you turn on the light, the bulb goes. Can't see. In a hurry, she says, come on, the taxi's beeping, he's going to leave. You don't have much time. So you have to grab a certain number of socks, bring them out into the landing where there's a bit of light, get a matching pair, put them on, and then out you go. Is that okay? So the question is, what's the minimum number of socks you need to grab in order to be sure of getting a matching pair? So what is it? Seven, three, 13, seven, seven. Anybody else? We have an 8, okay, so we have a 3, we have a 7, we have an 8, we have a 13. So we have lots of suggestions, alright? What aspect of mind did that work there? Discursive mind. So it's working very hard. Now not only is it trying to come up with the right answer, it's trying to figure out are the answers that have been suggested by others right or not? And can you jump on one because, even though you haven't figured it out? So all that's going on in discursive mind, but it doesn't know the right answer. Now the chances are you've been so keen to get your answer out, you haven't referred it to intellect yet. And he hasn't had a chance to tell you what's right. It could be discursive mind has tried to decide for you. Who said 13? Okay, so you said 13. 
Now, if I can ask, why 13? Why not 12? What would happen if you took 12 socks? And what would be wrong with that? <laughs> All right. Now, see that process where the solution is proposed, or a counter-argument, if you like, to 13? Immediately it's referred to intellect, and intellect says, oh yeah, it's not 13. I don't know what the right answer is, but I know it's not 13. Is that okay? So who said seven? All right, so why seven? Why not six? What would happen if there were only six? And again, what would be wrong with that? You'd have a pair. So six would be okay. Six is too many. So what's happening in the mind now? The ego is taking walloping. The ego is taking walloping, yeah. <laughs> Discursive mind is probably doing a little bit of work. Intellect or reason is trying to get a look in if, if it could find the space. And there's a few egos around here wishing they hadn't shouted out 13 when they did. <laughs> and hoping I don't pick on them. So, do you know what the right answer is now? Are you sure? Two. Who said two? And two is the right answer. Is the minimum number needed to get a matching pair? Well, a matching pair. But couldn't you have a white and a black? Well, it's I meant to say a colour matching pair. But I'll be more specific the next talk I give. Thank you. So for a colour matching pair, Three. Are you absolutely crystal clear on three? Are you sure it's three? Yeah. yeah. Now, how's the mind now? Is it still striving and working, or is it happy that three is the right answer? And it's waiting for whatever comes up next now. It's waiting, yeah, because the dispute has been resolved, the issue has been resolved. Now, it could be that there's still somebody in the room who hasn't figured out why it's three. Why is it not seven, or why is it not two or four? Well, the chances are they won't own up because of ego. The same reason with me and the joke and my wife on the couch. The ego causes a lot of trouble, which is this next aspect. The ego is that aspect of mind which claims things and identifies with things. It attaches to things. So ego would be that aspect of mind which says, I'm looking well, or I'm fat, or I'm tall, or I'm thin, or I'm brave or I'm a winner or I'm a loser, any of those things where there's an association or an identification with, that's ego. It's a process of attachment or identification and it starts with a claim, where you claim something. And you can claim anything, you can claim a parking space, you can claim a seat. To illustrate this and the effect that ego has when it's operating, if you recall when you came into the room first and there were pretty much, what, maybe 30 chairs here, and they're all empty. Where could you sit? You could sit anywhere, couldn't you? You're absolutely free to sit anywhere. Was there any sense of bondage or limitation or restriction? You could just sit anywhere. Now, when we go out for a cup of coffee and come back in, now where can you sit? Can you sit anywhere, really? Now, if you come down to that chair there and he's in it, what are you going to do? <laughs> All right, well, maybe you're a little bit freer of ego than the rest of us, but what usually happens is we get a bit... So was I not sitting there? I mean, is that, is that not my coat on the back of the chair? Are you in my chair? Does that happen? Well, that's ego in action, where it claims something and identifies with something. And straight away, 
your options narrow down and you become limited. Now when you come back into the room, there's only one place in the whole room you can sit. And you can't sit anywhere else. This happens everywhere. It could be a parking space. You could claim a, a parking space from a hundred yards away and then somebody else ahead of you gets it and nicks your space. Because you claimed it. That's what the ego does and it's very quick. What would it be like to go shopping with discursive mind and ego and to leave intellect at home? What would that shopping experience be like? It would be pretty troublesome. So well, the things you'd end up with in your wardrobe that you'd never buy and never wear and never bring back. They have a relative place and we sometimes get them wrong. Discursive mind is usually far more prominent than intellect and ego usually plays far too big a part in our lives. I was in Wexford on my holidays and you know the beach where they filmed Saving Private Ryan? You know that beach? Curraclough or somewhere around there. We were Curraclough and now the, obviously the movie's long gone but while we were there we were walking along the beach and there was this little encampment. You know the way a family or two arrive and they kind of set up their, their pitch and they had these windsheeter things. Now our windsheeter is only about three or four feet high and isn't actually very effective. These windsheeters were six foot high. You couldn't see over them. And they had two of them arranged in a semicircle like that. One that side and one that side. And at the back of this enclosure, they had one of these tents for the kids. You know the tents they bring to the beach now that the kids can get in out of the shade for a while? They had a big one of those at the back for supplies or something, I don't know what. And at the front here, at the two sentry posts, they had their boogie boards and surfboards and swing ball and all the bags and towels. So you actually could hardly see into the little encampment and took up quite a bit of space. So what's going on there, do you think? Yeah, they claimed that part of the beach. Now, I scorned at this until I remembered I had done exactly the same when I plonked my little towel down. I put my towel down here. And you know the way you have a bag as well? But you don't want to put your bag on the towel because you're kind of taking up your own space. So you put it on the sand. But you don't put it too far away because then people will cut through and it won't be your space anymore. So you just put it a little bit. So I did exactly the same thing. Now what you get is when you claim a space like that, you do get that space just like you get the chair. But what do you lose then? You lose your freedom. You lose the whole entire rest of the beach. And it gets worse. If somebody, having claimed this little patch as your own, you kind of become identified with it and proud of it and you try and keep the towel straight and the sand off it. And I didn't do it, but imagine as you walk past here, you just kind of whispered under your breath loud enough for them to hear. You think that's big. You should see the one down the other end of the beach. What do you think would happen to the people who built this? They'd be off sending a scouting party down to see what's going on and maybe dig tunnels and sabotage it. All because of claim and attachment. Once I think it's mine, I think I have to defend it. If I start talking about Enniskillen people and how stupid they are, will anybody here mind? Does anybody object? Or? But if I say I've heard it, Kilkenny people aren't as bright as Waterford people. <laughs> what would happen? What happens? You get involved, don't you? You take offence. Now, why is that? It's purely because of attachment and identification. We've claimed an attachment to it. And if you limit yourself to one thing, you lose everything else. So if you limit yourself to being a Kilkenny person, you lose being an Irish person, a European, a human being. You can potentially miss all of that because you're bound and limited to one small thing. This happens everywhere. We laugh at Germans claiming the sunbeds and we do exactly the same thing. 
you know, sometimes see people in a show or on a bus where they put their coat, not even on their own chair, but the one beside them. So they have this little extra bit of space. So nobody's going to sit on it. This is all claim and attachment and identification. We're no longer free. And in that regard, ego is best dissolved or minimized. Now it can be useful to a point, but where it takes over like that, it really gets in the way and upsets the balance and working of the mind. The true use of the mind then would be to have all these different aspects of mind working in their proper order. So discursive mind, what should discursive mind be connected to? Well, it needs to be connected to the intellect, yes, but it needs to be connected in the present. It needs to pick up the information. If you want to cross a road, and the mind is busy thinking what you're going to buy in the shop when you get to the other side, what's going to happen? There's going to be trouble. So the best thing for a discursive mind is to be connected to the senses. So if you go to a talk, and the discursive mind is chatting away about what you're going to do tomorrow or what you did yesterday, and you miss the talk, you won't have a clue what happened. You won't be able to cross the road. If discursive mind isn't connected to the senses and in the present, you won't even know whether you locked your front door. Did you ever have to go back and check that you locked your front door? Why could that happen? The most valuable thing that we own, and we don't even know if we locked the front door. Now what happens is we're locking the front door, but we're talking to ourselves saying, now will I go, will I take the west route or will I take this route? Which shop will I stop in and who will I have lunch with? And we're not there when the locking of the door happens, so we don't remember it. If somebody asks you later on, did you lock your front door? Intellectual reason may not know, because it doesn't have the information. Discursive mind had absconded, wasn't doing its job. Dereliction of duty. So discursive mind connected in the present, through the senses, gather up all the information and refer it to intellect when appropriate with ego kept to a minimum. So if somebody else sits in your chair, you don't mind. Maybe they can't hear so well and they couldn't hear anything at the back and they need to sit at the front. You say, fine. The misuse of the mind, well, there'll be a lot of opportunities to misuse the mind. These would be very common ways that we abuse the mind and see if they're familiar particularly with regard to how they take us away from the present. So one thing that's common is daydreams, a daydream. So a bus drives past with a palm tree on it and all of a sudden we're in the Bahamas. For the next 20 minutes we're in the Bahamas. We're actually driving home but the mind is in the Bahamas. So we forget the milk, we forget the bread, we take the wrong turn. Often a daydream. Where I lived in Dublin as a kid is about a half an hour's walk to the city centre or you could cycle in or get the bus. Depending on the weather and everything else, we would take a different mode of transport. I remember one day, I cycled into town and got the bus home. <laughs> and for weeks, I could not find my bicycle. I didn't know where it was. Now, how can that happen? It happens because the mind is not in the present. The mind is often a daydream. Just not connected. So the information isn't available. Intellect can't do its job. I couldn't tell my father. I, I, I don't know what excuse I gave him. But I couldn't own up to being so absent-minded as to lose my bicycle. Another aspect is internal conversations. And internal conversations would be where nobody else knows what you're little rattling away inside. I wouldn't have worn that or I wouldn't do it that way. Just little passing remarks and opinions and what we have for dinner. If I do this and they're going to come at three o'clock, so 
three o'clock. I must get that clock fixed. Where do I get batteries? And I wondered, are those rechargeable batteries any use? I saw one in Argos. Where's the nearest hour? You know? And all of a sudden, we've been yapping away to ourselves and we've gone all over the place. Internal conversations or circling thoughts where the same little thought goes around and around in the mind. It could be a little worry about an exam or maybe you have to meet the bank manager or you have to get a test result or something like that. And they're just these circling thoughts going round and around in the mind. I heard a program on the BBC a while ago about musical hallucination, which is a, a psychiatric condition where you hear a song on the radio in the morning and it's rattling around in your mind all day. Is that familiar? But they've studied this and they've researched what songs are the most popular to hallucinate on. And I mean, we could go on. There's a lot that can happen in the mind, but we don't need to examine it in great detail. All we need to do is look at it to see, is the fruit of that useful? Is that a useful application of the mind? And anything that takes us away from the present, in general, is not a good thing. Because you won't be able to cross the road, you won't be able to drive home. You might forget even who you're talking to. Did you ever call somebody the wrong name? Being in the present will avoid all of that. Shakespeare spoke about all this sort of activity in the mind when he said, And thus the native hue of resolution is sicklied o'er with the pale cast of thought and enterprises of great pith and moment with disregard their currents turn awry and lose the name of action. Doth conscience makes cowards of us all. And this is what he was speaking about. All this activity in the mind. Will I, won't I, should I, shouldn't I, I can't, I wouldn't. What would people think? And the moment passes and you didn't give them a lift or you didn't say hello. So that's the effect of it. A heavy price to pay. How should we care and feed the mind to have it in its best tip-top shape? Do we want the discursive aspect of mind to be in the present, connected with the senses. We want the intellect to be reasonable and to be operating, and we want ego to be at a minimum, not to be in charge, so the mind isn't wandering about. How can we do that? What do we need to do? To look at the proper care and feeding of the mind, we're going to take a quick look at the three qualities of things. Has anybody heard of these qualities? or three ingredients of the creation. It's a little bit like the three primary colours. All other colours come from those three, is that right? In whatever way you mix them. But in the same way, in the creation, there are three qualities of things. Now if I explain the effect of these three qualities, and then give you a few examples of things like food or music, you can tell me what quality they have. Because we need to know this in order to feed the mind properly. The three qualities would be sattva, well, these are Sanskrit words, but I'll tell you what they mean. Sattva, rajas, and tamas. And for sattva, the English word satisfaction comes from sattva. And the effect of sattva is it refreshes or enlivens. The effect of rajas would be movement and activity. And the English word rage would come from rajas. And the effect of tamas, if tamas is predominant, would be that things are absorbed and retained. And the English word tame comes from tamas. These are the qualities of things and they're also the effect that they have. So for example, if I give you some music, some songs, you can tell me which quality they relate to. If I say the meatloaf classic, Bat Out of Hell, what would you say? That'd be rajas, all right? So a lot of activity, movement, dynamic, yeah, fast and busy. If I said, 
all things bright and beautiful. It would be something like Satwa. And if I said the old country and western favourite, my girlfriend's gone and left me and she took the dog as well. <laughs> it would say Tamas. That would be the effect it would have on you. Wouldn't it? I read a study where it, it proposed that fans of country and western music died a little bit earlier than anybody else. Because, well, I don't know whether that's true. What's the effect of, for example, driving a car listening to Bat Out of Hell? How are you going to drive? You're going to drive fast. What we feed on or what we engage in does have the same effect on us as its quality. If we talk about food, so we're going to have a refreshment bake in a few minutes and we're going to have an extra spicy vindaloo curry and a glass of Red Bull. <laughs> what would you say is the quality of that? It's Rajas. And what effect would it have on you? The same. If we were going to have a 16-ounce steak with roast mashed and boiled potatoes and gravy and black forest gato, tamas. That's the effect it has on us. And if we're going to have maybe a Mediterranean salad with sun-dried tomatoes and a basil pesto with some sparkling water or something, what? Satwa. And is that the effect it has on us when we eat food like that? If we listen to bat out of hell and eat vindaloo curries and, and so on, you can imagine what effect it's going to have on the body, mind and heart. And that's not surprising, that's to be expected. This applies to absolutely everything. From television programs to movies, say something like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you'd know where to put it, or something like It's a Wonderful Life, you'd know where to put it. If I said EastEnders, where would you put that? What effect does EastEnders have on you? <laughs> or clothes, or even a carpet. People might sometimes say, oh, that's a very busy carpet. Have you ever heard somebody say that? What do they mean? A lot of people, what are you talking about, busy carpet? It's just a carpet. But what they mean is it's very rajasic. It's whatever way it's, it's shaded or coloured or the pattern. What would you say the quality of this room is? Kind of sat, we could like pastel green and, you know, soft light. So that's the effect it has. These things all apply whether we know it or not. So when you eat a meal, it will have its effect, whether you know about it or not. Now there's also measure which comes into all of these. Because there's only so much sparkling water and Mediterranean salad you can eat. There are only so many hours you can spend in an art gallery. There's a measure to all of these things. There's an appropriate measure. And we do need a change. And there will be a time for these different effects. For example, before I put my children to bed, we tried to have a half an hour of quiet time where they stop building these Lego towers as high as they can to see who can reach the ceiling and fall over without hitting the lampshade or something. And We have a quiet time. Why would we do that? To try and calm them down. To, so that they can go to sleep easily. Now what would you do before, say, an important football match? Would you have a little quiet time? And, because action is called for. Very serious actions. How would you prepare for that? You'd introduce some raja. So there's a time and a place for all of these. And it's necessary, otherwise we wouldn't be able to go to sleep. Did you ever try to go to bed and go to sleep with the mind in a very rajasic state? Is it possible to sleep? Impossible. So tamas is essential. And sattva is essential. Sattva certainly helps reason to prevail in the mind. So we do need some of that. If we're busy all day, we can get caught up in things. And measure applies to all of this. So knowing that, and we do know that already, we don't have to be taught, what we're going to do is look at how we can best feed the body, the mind and the heart.
Now, with these three categories in mind, so exercise, rest, and food or nourishment. Now, just again, watch the mind in action as we go through this, because what we'd like is a, a proper diet for the human being, for your particular individual forms and nature and shape and size and age. So, what would be good exercise for the body? Something like walking, yes. Anything else? Good exercise for the body? Mm -hmm. Swimming? Okay, so we don't have to work hard at this, we would know. What about rest for the body? It could be sleep. Is that the only rest for the body? Could be yoga? Could be? Could be sitting down. If you're on your feet all day, you might need to sit down. Even with regard to rest, there's a measure to it, and there comes a point, even in a talk, having been sitting down for about an hour, where you need a change. So you might need a bit of exercise, you need to get up. Food or nourishment for the body, what would be good food or nourishment for the body? Okay, so fruit and veg, frozen ones are fresh, okay, so you'd like them to be fresh, why fresh? What's wrong with frozen or canned or pickled? They're not quite the same, are they? They have a different effect. And we know that. There's more satwa in fresh vegetables than there is in frozen or, or stewed or pickled. or Fish, yeah, protein, local, organic. So you would have a very good idea of what would be appropriate food or nourishment for the body, wouldn't you? And you know that. When you go into a restaurant, you will know that. The problem is, if you don't refer it to reason or intellect, as we have just here now, and discursive mind gets a go at it, or even ego, and you go up to the carvery and the guy behind the counter says, what would you like? Can I have a bit of turkey and ham with a bit of beef and some of the lamb as well? And would you like rice or chips? Yeah, can I have rice and chips? Well, you can't decide, because you'd like everything. Well, reason isn't operating. It would know that's not appropriate. So all we need to do is cultivate the mind so that it can decide and identify what's good food for the body. What would be good exercise for the mind? Staying in the present. Staying in the present would be good exercise, yeah, that can be challenging. Being in the present. Could be reading, yes. If I said with regard to the body and exercise, if we were on, say, the first or second floor and there was a stairs and a lift, which should you take? Stairs. Why? Exercise. And if you have to work out how much change you have to get in that shop between the £4.76 and the £10, should you try and work it out or just let it go and forget about it and pretend it never happened? Work it out. Yeah. So, a few challenges to the mind. Crosswords, yeah. Sudoku, all that. That would be good exercise for the mind. My wife's grandmother is 90 this weekend and she does, I think it's the Daily Mail crossword. It's a huge crossword every day. And she's as sharp as anything. Now, do you think that's coincidence? Hmm. Rest. What would be good rest for the mind? Meditation. Could be meditation. Somebody said sleep. Is sleep necessarily good rest for the mind? Any kind of sleep. Do you ever wake up tired, having had dreams all night? Well, deep sleep would certainly be good rest for the mind. 
but dreaming sleep wouldn't, where the body's asleep but the mind is very active. What about food or nourishment for the mind? What would be good food or nourishment? Positive thoughts. Okay. Anything else? Philosophy? Meditation. Meditation. So meditation would be good food for the mind and also would be good rest for the mind, would it? I'm asking you to refer that to reason. Would you say meditation would be on the rest category or the food category? Measure both, okay. Well, that's what happens when you can refer something to reason, right? Reason can have a go at answering it. Is reason sure that it, it goes in both, or is it going to not decide? An indication would be if you find you can't decide on things, if reason isn't able to prevail and apply and make decisions, it could be that it hasn't been used very much or isn't being used very much. I was in a restaurant a while ago and one of the chaps I was with couldn't decide what to have on the menu and he asked a waiter to pick for him. Now what would that tell you? It would tell you something at least about the sort of day he's had or the week or the, or the month or the year where he just can't pick what he wants off the menu. If we're not using reason then we will find it's difficult for it to make a decision. It may not always know. It does need to be used. Use it or lose it as they say. What about the heart? It's a big area, so we'll just touch on it. What would be good exercise for the heart? The emotional heart. Caring, okay. Love, okay. So they would be good exercise for the heart, would they? Would you exercise the heart? What about rest for the heart? What would be good? rest for our emotional aspect. Peace. peace. How do we get peace? Emotional peace? Could be love as well, okay. And what about food or nourishment for the heart? Meditation. Meditation, that can have an effect on the heart. Giving. Yeah, or, or giving. Under exercise, you might have things like gratitude or forgiveness. What effect does it have on your emotional aspect when you forgive somebody or when you express gratitude? Well, Feel a lot better, don't you? Okay, so we know exactly what to do for body, mind and heart to have them in good shape. What sort of shape would we be in if we had the proper exercise, rest and nourishment for body, mind and heart? What sort of shape would we be in? We'd be in fantastic shape. The body is fit and healthy and is rested and it's nourished and ready to go. The mind is in the present, it's connected, reason is prevailing and it's challenging and it's, it's busy and active. We use it rather than just going to a daydream. And the heart is open and full of love. What sort of shape would we be in if that was the case? Happy as Larry. Tip-top shape, wouldn't we? We would be in tip-top shape. So with measured use of the senses in the body and with reason prevailing in the mind and with love in the heart, all of which we know exactly how to do. If we apply a little bit of reason, use discursive mind to throw up the options, keep ego out of the way and let intellect or reason make the decision and identify what's best for us, we know exactly what to do and we know exactly how to be in tip-top shape with all our powers available, all our powers.
You can run, you can build, you can walk, you can carry. And the mind can calculate, it can imagine, uh, it can create. And the heart can love, love infinitely. So now, with all that in place, we're now ready. We're in tip-top shape and we're now ready. Ready to fulfill the chief aim of human life. So that's the end of the talk. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Okay, well, thanks for coming back. Anything anybody would like to say or ask? I was just interested to notice that you didn't mention the word conscience in any of it. Okay, you know, yes. So I just wonder where does that come in? Well, one reason I didn't use it was because in Shakespeare's little piece, he uses the word conscience, but it's a bit like... In these movies, you'd see like a little angel on one shoulder, devil on the other, and they're both talking into your ear. And I think that's just the mind playing away there, like good cop, bad cop, and all that sort of stuff, very often. But we might call the do the right thing voice, you know, yapping away all the time, conscience. But really, intellect or reason would be the best conscience of all, because that would be the one that it'll never let you down. When you were thinking about the lady, the old lady on the bus stop or whatever, you know, your conscience got at you when you went down the road and you thought, I better go back and get her. Or was that just a thought? Well, I was kind of feeling guilty about it and it was all very complicated. Yeah. There was nothing clean. If there was such a thing as conscience, it would have been the voice of reason, which said, give the woman a lift for heaven's sake. And if I had listened to that, I would have given her a lift, dropped her into Celebridge and headed on home and that would have been the end of it. Whereas, I think people have a, a different understanding uh, a variety of understandings about the word conscience. So feeling guilty, for example, people could call that conscience, but you could feel guilty, you can feel regret, you can feel lots of things. It's also basically decision. Ultimately, yes. Ultimately, you make the decision. Yes. And you say, I'm gone, I'm not picking her up, end of story, boom, next thing. Yes, I should have done that. In the present, yeah. all the time. Yes, I should have done that. Either way, I couldn't give her a lift, and I couldn't not give her a lift either. Reason just wasn't on the scene, it was AWOL. Now, you'd have to look at how I had been living the day up to then for reason, or, and the week and the life. The effect of feeding on rubbish is not going to be in much of a state to make a decision or to pick a pair of shoes. Or, I mean, how do you vote and how do you... All these big, important decisions and I'm having a clue. So I think conscience at the finest level would be the voice of reason, if you like. What the most important thing that you have to keep in touch with here? Yes. From what you've been saying. Yes. It, well, it has to operate. Now, it's very quiet, and lots of analogies would be used. One analogy would be it's kind of like a mirror. It, it reflects things. It reflects the truth about things, okay, like a true mirror will. But if a mirror is dirty or distorted, it'll give a distorted picture. That's what reason will do, and it, it will keep you right if we let it operate. Thank you. You put up discursive mind and you put up intellect. How have you come to those or how do you draw those analogies? How do you choose those words or how do you take upon yourself to put them into those categories? 
Well, you can use whatever words you like. The word, whether it's English or Sanskrit or French, or like ego would be a, a particular word that would be used from the psychology tradition. People have a sense of what that means, like my ego, where you boost somebody's ego and they feel good about themselves. The use of the word reason or intellect would be pretty common, you know, where people say, well, you know, well, now be reasonable here, so they appeal to reason, so it would be a particular faculty of mind. Now, there'd be lots of ways to look at it. This is just one that's proposed to give us a good sense of how it works. Because invariably we end up using discursive mind all day and reason very little to the point where we can't really make a, a full and proper and true decision. And we end up wishing we picked the other thing no matter what we pick. So it's really just to give a flavour of the nature of the mind. There'll be lots of ways to look at it, but that would be one way. Is that okay? And the words, I wouldn't worry about the words once you get a sense of, of how it works. Yeah, okay. Thank you. I was wondering, is reason anything to do with know thyself? Would it be linked anyway? Well, it would. You, you couldn't really have a go at that one without reason. For example, if, if, when I asked the question, are you your body or is it something you have? I mean, all sorts of possibilities would be tossed up, but it would be reason that would say, actually, when you put it like that, you're not your body, you know, it's something that you have. So reason could be used in that process. Your truth within yourself. Yes, it, it would be to do with the truth. Reason would always go with truth. For example, the know thyself bit. This chap, Ramana Maharshi, that I mentioned, people used to go to him and ask him questions. His way of answering them was he would always try and turn it around to that process of self-inquiry. They could ask any sort of a question, and he'd say, yeah, that's fine, but who's asking the question? And he'd say, well, I am. And he'd say, yeah, but who are you? Oh, well, I'm Deccan. That's just a name. Who are you really? That way he would try and get reason operating on this process of inquiry. You know, who am I? Am I my body? No, I'm not that. Okay, so what am I then? Am I the mind? No, I'm not the mind either. What am I? Am I the heart? No, I'm not the heart. Well, what am I then? And then things can open up. So that was his approach. So whatever was presented in the mind, for him, the question to ask was, to whom is this presented? Anything at all, the finest thought you can imagine, and still ask the question, to whom is this presented? And that was his way of doing this know-thyself approach. The truth, the real truth is about knowing yourself. Yes. So that would be the reason for your reason. It's different for everybody, would it? Well, the proposition would be no. I mean, there would be many different radios and different types and qualities and so on, but there would be only one music, if you like, in that analogy. If you extend that a little bit further, so with regard to body, mind and heart, what is it that passes through them? This light that Christ spoke about, that the creation kind of operates through this individual here. What the wise will say is that there is only one. There are lots of different varieties of equipment here and instruments. But behind that, there's something that they all have in common. Now, how you would kind of manifest that certainly will be different from person to person. And all these great parables, they often speak about talents, for example, where you're given eight talents, you're given four and you're given one, and the master goes off and he comes back and he says, how did you get on? And the fellow with eight has now 16, and the fellow with four has now six, and the fellow with one, he buries it in the ground, he gives back the one. So you know what happens to him, he's punished, he's not allowed in. Now, it doesn't matter how many you're given, but you have to use them to the full potential. That would vary from person to person. 
So different people will achieve different things and in different fields, and that's all fine, but this idea of who am I or know thyself, what's behind all of that? What's driving or allowing all that to happen? They'd be the good questions to ask. Well, it is a bit confusing. The general idea is that what you see here, this is me. This is the body and my mind and all that I've learnt and all my ideas and attitude. That's what makes me what I am. With a little bit of inquiry and reason operating, you suddenly consider that maybe this isn't what I am at all. I just have these. But what am I then? So there can be a bit of confusion or at least questioning, maybe more to the point. What they all say is that's very healthy, that's very, very good, and that's a very good use of the mind, to put the mind to that task, try and figure out who am I. Thank you. Different people have different talents. Do they always have to have reason as the principal driver? You know, the, the brilliant footballer, the artist, they might be working from discursive mind, but yet everybody sees the light, the genius in these people. So I'm just wondering, is reason always the top of the pyramid, if you like? Is it always the... The well, thing we're, we're aiming for, you know, or, or is it just express yourself, do you oh, say? Oh, no, reason wouldn't be what you're aiming for. To get the mind working properly, there should be reason in the mind. Now, discursive mind could be working very, very hard and doing an awful lot of work. For example, a footballer, I mean, he's 50 yards out from the goal and it's windy and he's against the wind and all these have to be taken into account. So he considers them all and then he just kicks the ball. So reason and all his experience and everything he's done up to then will allow him to kick it in a certain way. But all that discursive mind has to stop and just let him kick the ball. Sport, that would be one expression of it. Now some people would be predominantly more this area here in the heart. Like a lot of artists, it would be a lot of creativity and emotion and feeling and so on. And this area wouldn't be so prominent. And with other people, they could be a lot more intellectual and not work so much with the heart. And that's fine too. Whichever one you're using, it does need to be working in the right way. Some people work a lot with the body, like the athletes and sportsmen. Other people are very happy, you know, with the minimum of exercise, just to maybe use this aspect or this aspect. But for, in order for the mind to work, reason ultimately has to be sovereign. Now, it doesn't mean it's cold and unfair or anything like that. It can be absolutely compassionate and sensitive. For example, do you ever play football and you're running up the pitch and there's somebody there, somebody there, somebody there, and somebody over there? And who do you pass the ball to? Now, you know how to kick a ball and you know how to do everything, but you have to pick somebody. Well, that's where reason it just operates in the minutest of flashes. That guy is just a little bit further from his marker than everybody else. Or something like that. That's the idea. I just wonder, do these people, you know, that we see this genius or whatever, is it they have found their talent? Is it, is it finding your talents and, and, and working towards those? That's oh yes, part of knowing yourself. Is this part of the? Well, I suspect it's a big part of it to find, you know, something that you love to do, and then just to do that fully and let yourself be expressed fully through whatever your work or your job or your sport. It happens to be. There would be a lot of people who would be in a job just for the sake of a job or just to pay the mortgage because they've always done it that way or they're afraid to try something else. That may be a little bit restrictive in terms of allowing the full expression of their talents. That's what was meant in these parables about whatever you have, you have to use it to the full potential.
Okay, thank you. What is the end game of knowing yourself? How would one end up if one fully knew oneself? What would you do, sort of thing, yeah. yeah. What would life be like? I was in the Rockies or something one time, and I was driving over these mountains here. Whenever you're driving through the Rockies, once you go over a mountain in the next one, as long as you're in that valley, there's only one radio station you can hear. That's the local radio station. So as you're driving in, there's this little sign up that says WKR 96, whatever. Um, so that's all you can tune into. And I remember tuning into a particular one, and the program that was being broadcast was it was an interview with a local personality. I think the day before they did the butcher, the next day they were going with the postman, and today it was the beekeeper. This is true now. I got the whole half-hour program before we left the valley. And this guy was fascinating. He loved bees and honey, and it was very, very interesting. Just at the end, the interviewer said to him, how long have you been doing this? Because it's the way he was talking, he'd swear he was like seventh generation. And he said, about three years. And he said, really? He said, what did you do before that? And he said, I was a nuclear missile impact predictor with NASA. He said, and I got up one morning, and I just couldn't do it anymore. I had to do something else. I had to look to see what did I love to do. I knew nothing about bees, but I just started to do this. So that's where he ended up doing that. As a child, I remember growing up a particular street, and we lived in number 12, and there was a 10, and a 8, and a 6, and a 4, and a 2, and 14. And this was our house here, and there's a bit of a footpath, and then there's a road, and there's a kind of a bank and a railings. And I remember my father, you know, on a Saturday when you kind of do your jobs, he used to sweep the little drive here, right? And he'd also sweep the path in front of the house. And he'd sweep across the road. You know, the weeds can gather here at the corner of the footpath, and, the, and he'd clear the weeds. And, and sometimes he'd do the neighbours as well. And I couldn't understand, why would you do that? Sure, can't they do there? This is ours. And he just did it. And he often used to do this. And sometimes he'd go up this way. I remember one day, he went all the way down to number two, and went across the road and down the lane, around the back. And he swept the whole place. And that's what he did. It struck me, and has remained with me ever since, that he just didn't stop. You know, he wasn't bound by this little limit, you know, this little bit of claim. So heaven knows what you'd end up doing, and it's a bit scary, isn't it? Yeah, it sounds scary. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty well, well worn out as well. Well, if, if everything's working properly, then that won't happen, because you'll try and keep the body, mind and heart in the best shape in order to do the job. And measure will come into it. You would take the right exercise, and you would take the right amount of food if you were coming from that approach. But it is a little bit scary. There's some comfort in what's familiar, and you do have to be brave to say, well, what would I do otherwise? I suppose a development in the spiritual side would be able to carry you anyway. We'll be able to carry you. There will be enough energy given from the spiritual development to allow you to do these things. That's where this would often head in the direction of, if you start to ask the question, well, what's it all about? Because you've got body, mind and heart, well, what else is there? So whatever word you use, it's spirit or self or consciousness or God, whatever, the, but something in that realm. And once you start with some type of spiritual endeavor, which isn't just concerned with getting the body a little bit fitter and the mind a little bit sharper so you can be quicker with your put-downs and witty at parties and the heart a bit more open so people love you more and... It's not that, you know, spiritual endeavour would be of a different order. So that's the direction it could take if this process of inquiry started. It could point in that direction. That part of it would be quite a personal path, if you like. And the form it would take could be anything.
there's a book called, I think it's The Cloud of Unknowing. And in that book, there, at one point it says that no two souls ever travel more than halfway on the same path to God. So it's slightly different, maybe for everybody, at the end of the day. In terms of how you go about it and what you do and maybe what club you join or what religion or what organisation or what practices you start. Having a go at this here would put you in the right direction. And if this is in the right shape, it'll keep you right. won't let you be fooled. Does that make some sort of sense? Yeah? Thank you. Attachments, yeah. Attachments are the bogey, this lady said. Well, they bring a lot of pleasure because we kind of attach ourselves to things that we tend to like, but you get pain with that. Pleasure and pain go together, and you also lose all the other options. So ultimately, they just get in the way. The more you're attached to something, the more it gets in your way, and the less free you are. Now, attachment and love would be absolutely different. Attachment would be where you like something for my sake, so that I'm happier and better off, and I, it's mine, and now I have it. In fact, I have two of them, and you've known them. I'm going to keep it. Because you just can't, can you? You can't actually keep anything. My six-year-old the other day said, somehow this, some sort of conversation up, and he said it was his heir. We got a new kitchen table, I think that's what, and he was trying to sort out his place, and he said about his heir. And I said, well, hold on to it then. So he closes about to stop breathing for about 30 seconds, then he had to give it back. Ultimately, you can't hold on to things. What do they say? There's no pockets in the shroud, don't they say? No tow bar in the hearse. <laughs> yeah. So you can't take it with you, and in the meantime, it'll just cause you trouble, and you'll miss maybe your other things. Would living to your full potential, would that be a kind of overview of a successful aim in human life? It would. Now, not to get out of the question, but the crucial bit there when you say living to your full potential is the your bit. So what the your, or what you refers to there, is that bit that's most important. Because if you think, if you say, yeah, the body, so the full potential here is maybe to try and do a marathon in under three hours, or maybe the 100 meters in less than 12 seconds or something, that may well be the potential for the body. But it's not your potential. That's just the body. I mean, the potential of a car could be to do 140 miles an hour in terms of speed. That's just the potential of the instrument. So the crucial bit there is, what does you refer to? So you're absolutely right with regard to potential. I mean, body, mind and heart will have particular talents, and they should be used. But to what end? And this is the end here. What's the chief aim? Will everybody not have a different aim due to their background, where they live? You know what I mean? Well, what the great teachers say is that no. They say there's only one and that the expression of that will maybe vary in different ways. So some people will do this through music, some people through carpentry, some people through sport, some people through well, whatever form it would take. But that's just the expression. Declan, thank you very much indeed for the interesting talk. I'm not quite sure how to word this, but I'll try and explain it and hopefully you'll pick it up. It was just in relation to giving rest to the mind. Yes. And somebody suggested that you could go on holidays and give the mind rest in that way. Yes. And you said, well, it's not quite as easy as that because your mind can still be thinking about 101 other things, yes. even though you're in holiday. You went on to then mention something to the effect that it was more in relation to the absence of desire. Yes. And immediately it popped into my mind, well, 
you know, if you can't give your mind rest on holidays because you're thinking about all these other things, how can you then turn around and say, well, absence of desire will give the mind rest because it would be, for most of us, an extremely difficult thing to do or whether you should even try to do it as such or what your intention is or perhaps if you just say a little bit more to explain that. Okay. Well, the desire part of it is very often the desires of the ego or even the desires of the body for usually something to do with the senses, something with food or sight or hearing that you would engage or indulge in these. So, for example, you're at a meal and you're full, the body's satisfied, but you love black forest gatto. So, you know, the body will eat the black forest gatto. Even though the measure is now wrong, you've got too much. But it's for the sake of the taste of it. And so if the measure's all wrong, and that would be desire. That would be driving that. In the course of the day, there will be many desires. I want to get a certain place at a certain time. And you're so busy doing that, you miss what's happening. I've often noticed that I could be driving somewhere and it's 10 to 6, and I turn the radio on to get the 6 o'clock news. And next thing I know, it's 10 past 6, and I miss the news. I'm doing lots of things. You know, it's doing 69 miles an hour, and I'm rehearsing the conversation I'm going to have with the policeman when he stops me, because it's really very good, you know, really in a hurry. All that sort of stuff. And we're so busy being caught up in all that activity, which is generally driven by desire, that we miss what's actually happening. People often use this phrase, life is what's happening while you're making other plans. You heard that? And that's what they're talking about. So to counter that, there are these phrases that people use like, wake up and smell the coffee. And it's not to do with the coffee, but if you just smell, you know, or see the roses or something like that. I know a man in Belfast, the first time I went to Belfast, I saw City Hall. And I said to this man who lived in Belfast all I said, that's a magnificent building. And he said, you know, I've never seen it. He'd never seen it. But that's what the mind will do. It keeps kind of pushing and wants to be active and busy, and it's all to do with desire and achievement. We were on holidays with my wife and the two children, and the day before we left, so this is the evening, and we still have another day to do, and then fly home, and I said to my oldest son, who was six, I said, so what was the best part of the holiday? All right? Which is a terrible thing to say to a six-year-old, because I finished it. But in this mind here, I was figuring out how to get home, there will be hassle at the airport, we need to pack. The whole thing was going on here. And you know what he said? He said, right now. We were just sitting having a meal outside on the plastic table and I said, what was the best part of the holiday? And he said, right now. He said, look, how could you ask me? So what he was doing there, he was right there and then in the present. He was absolutely content with what was going on. There was no desire there for anything else. Everything was perfect just as it was. Does that make sense? So in his case, that was absolutely perfect use of the mind. And in this case here, a woeful use. Yeah, I think what perhaps is becoming clear there is that you don't try and stop the desire. It's more that you come into the present moment in whatever way you can. That's right. And by doing that, the desire naturally is gone, and then the mind gets the rest. Yes, and what you can do with desire is you can satisfy it, or you can allow it to dissolve. Now, curiously, the effect of satisfying desire is that it only sets up another one. So if you satisfy the desire for black forest gallo, you'll only want it again the next time. Whereas it can be dissolved. And with proper use of the mind and discursive mind and reason, for example, a waiter will always say, what would you like for dessert? And as soon as they say, what would you like? Discursive mind goes into action. And he says, well, what have you got? And he says, well, we have strawberry gallo, we have cheesecake, we have lemon meringue, we have fruit tart. So you say, well, actually, can I have half rhubarb crumble and half strawberry gallo? And he says, would you like cream or ice cream? They say, can I have a bit of both? And that's all because we're working from desire. 
if he were to say, do you need anything for dessert, what would happen? Yeah, because the intellect knows, it's been presented to a different part of mind. So in that case, you're then free from desire. For the brief interval between one desire and the next, that is rest for the mind. And certainly desires can come, but you don't have to indulge in them or engage them, and, or run with them. They just arise and pass, just like sounds. Do it willpower. Yeah, you're saying like a desire. You desire something, you can quench that desire for it by, I don't know, diverting your mind almost. So really what you're talking about is willpower. If a habit has been set up, for example, to always have the Black Forest Gatto, or, for example, in the supermarket, you know the way they put the sweet counters just at the checkout? Because you're there for a couple of minutes and the Kit Kats are screaming at you, you know? And they know that if you're working on the basis of what you'd like and desire, you'll probably take it. And the more often you do that, you set up a habit. So there will come a point where the hand automatically puts the Kit Kats into the basket. So willpower doesn't come into it? Well, if a habit has been set up, you may call it willpower that would be needed to overcome it. If a habit has been set up, because it needs something, because the force of habit is very, very strong. For example, if you try to change something that's set up, that's been established nearly a second nature, like who might have the wrong grip for golf. You know, to change that is very hard work. Or to change your style of handwriting, or the way you speak, or your accent. Or you always go a certain way home. So they would be habits that are set up, and it may willpower to overcome that. Or you could apply it to reason. And reason will say, you don't really need the Kit Kats. And if you're able to operate under reason, then you can safely move on and pay for the groceries. Is that okay? This gentleman here first. You quoted Jesus there as saying, be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Is Jesus saying, get in touch with your true self? Yes, that's exactly what he's saying. He's saying, be perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. That's exactly what he's speaking about. In school, with Shakespeare, I had no interest. It didn't connect with it. You know, it, it was just something you had to muddle through. And it's only a long time later that there's a lot of appreciation for what he was trying to say and how perceptive he was. The same would apply here with this particular man's upbringing in religion and this head altar boy and all sorts of things and still there was no real connection with the Bible or its religion. And then all of a sudden, a read in the Bible, one minute he's saying, I am the light of the world. Next minute he says, you are the light of the world. This is incredible stuff. So that's exactly what they're saying and that's what they're speaking about, is the true self. And couldn't the church do with teaching just that basic philosophy? Yes, well, I can't obviously speak for the church. It is often the case that someone will go to a wise man or woman and say, you know, tell me the truth of the matter, and they will say, you are pure, perfect, complete, you're the light of the world, your body, mind and heart are instruments for your use, and you need to know yourself, and they will do that. And you will say, yeah, I know that, but I have trouble at home, and I can't sleep at night, and I'm hassling the job, you know, what do I do? And this person might say, well, you need to realize that it's all a play or a drama and that these things are just taking place and they're not happening to you. So they will say things like that. And if you say, well, yeah, I know, yeah, well, but how do I sort this out and what can I do? So perhaps at that point, out of compassion, the wise man or woman might say, well, okay, this is what you do. Well, you get a bit more exercise, go to bed early, get a bit more sleep, eat more fresh fruit and vegetables. And so what they will then do is they will turn the attention to the body, mind and heart and they will prescribe some activity and exercise and so on, not for an end in itself, but only so that the body, mind and heart can refine to the point where that sort of thing can be heard. Is that okay? 
So if somebody is asking for help at a particular level, then I believe the appropriate compassionate thing to do would be to meet them at that level. And this gentleman here. I think, like, religion, what the gentleman was talking about, and what you were talking about before, you know, the lack of desire and all that, but I mean, isn't this kind of anti-human? It stops human spontaneity. If you always have to think before you do something that you want to do, like having a big desire to something, you have to say, oh, I don't want this. I mean, you know, aren't we spontaneous and, you know, to be really alive and that kind of thing, doing what you want to do? I don't mean if it's something like killing somebody or something extreme, but I mean, like, just to live a, a normal life and, you know, get married and whatever, and you want to do as a human being. Like, I find this business of always having to look at a list of rules and, you know, am I committing sin or this, that, or the other, it, it's really stopped you living. And yes. I think you're getting neurotic in the end. And hard work. With all this. Yes. That would not be prescribed at all here. In fact, the opposite. The idea would be that it's the thinking itself that gets in the way. It's wanting particular things that gets in the way. And that, in fact, stops you being a human being. And it limits you. For example, there's a man I sometimes go to lunch with, and if there's chicken curry on the menu, he'll have the chicken curry. And he likes chips, and he likes rice. So the waitress says, would you like rice or chips with that? What do you think he says? Okay. Bit of both, but half and half. Now, there's lots else on the menu. There's lasagna, there's vegetarian lasagna, there's soul, there's all sorts of things. But he's working on the basis of desire and what he wants and what he likes. On that basis, what do you think his range of choices are? Limited to what? Limited to one particular thing, to the thing that he likes most. And if he likes two things, he puts those through. But what's not available to him is the whole range of options. And he can't even consider them. He just sees the chicken curry and the rice and chips, and a bit of that with half and half. If he was working on the basis of not what he wants, but what's needed, all right? What is then available to him? The whole menu. His choice is unlimited. What also is he free to choose? Anything, and even nothing if that's appropriate. Going on the basis of want, your choice is limited, and you're restricted, and you're bound to take the rice and chips even though you're not able for it. You might be full. So going on the basis of the mind thinking all the time and what I want seems to have the effect of limiting us. Going on the basis of what's needed opens everything up and leaves you free, not bound at all. And the proposition will be that will be a much more propitious state for a human being to be free and unbound and able to choose anything and not restricted to anything at all. If we're working on the basis of what we like and what's comfortable and familiar and convenient, then we will live a comfortable, convenient, familiar life. For me, I just think that association with things is a lot bigger than just thinking about them and reasoning it out. Like, just for instance, when I was small, I was going to the airport on holidays one year with my parents, and I had one of those purple snack bars. And the car was hot, and it was a long journey, and I ate the bar quite quickly and threw it all up over my father's shoulder, even though I asked him to stop three or four times. Ever since then, I won't touch them. Even if I see one now, it makes me feel almost queasy, because the association, the feeling of that comes back. Yes. And I did it as well on one of those chocolate things, funnily <laughs> enough. And I, I, those as well, like, I can even taste how it tasted then, right. feel how I felt then, just to look at it. So uh, to me, it's memory and association that builds 
more so than just reason and ego and the discursive mind, as you call it, or whatever. Yes, and they're very powerful and they operate. And some of that will be in the realm of the heart. The heart would be the realm of emotion and memory, for example seat of emotion, which we probably can't delve into too much. But they're all very powerful things, and they're all forces at play within this incredible instrument of body, mind and heart. And there's a lot going on, it's very complicated, and they're all interrelated. However, they're still just instruments. The proposition is the heart is just an instrument, something that you have. You have a heart. Now, it's not the physical heart, it's the emotional heart that we'd be speaking about. The physical yeah. heart is just a pump. Just as mind is a subtle thing, there is a subtle heart, and like love is a subtle thing, and things like forgiveness and compassion. You can't say, well, I have compassion here, and I have a bit of you know, forgiveness in my back pocket here. And so these are subtle things, and a subtle thing can't have a physical location. Now, there is a physical location through which these things are expressed or manifest or revealed. Mind is certainly connected somewhere up here. Heart is somewhere around here. Now, the physical heart is here. But there are those who say that the emotional heart, the center of that is maybe more over here or maybe more in the gut or the stomach. However, wherever it happens to be expressed to, it's a subtle thing. But the same proposition would be presented that are these things me or are they things that I have? And if they're things that I have, then they're for my use. And if they're for my use, is to what end? And this is the end here. What am I using it for? What is the chief aim of human life? Well, there's a load of books there, and I can give you all these quotations again. I mean, Christ said, you're the light of the world. Uh, so what do you do with that? Allow it to be expressed. Let the light so shine before men. Krishna said the same. Shankar said the same. All say the same thing. But the idea is that it could be that that's the work that has to be done, that the mind has to come to appreciate or realize this itself. I mean, you go to church on a Sunday, love the neighbours yourself, yeah, yeah, yeah. Apparently there are more dents in cars in church car parks than anywhere else. Everybody rushing to get out. So you can read about it, but it doesn't mean it's gone in or it's sunk in. The end, if you like, of the talk is that it's over to you. What are you going to do now with this incredible instrument of body, mind and heart? Absolutely incredible. Nothing like it. And if you were to apply even a little bit of the time, to trying to inquire what it is it all about, who am I, why am I here, what is the chief end of human life, that would be an excellent use of the mind, wouldn't it? You know, everybody's talking about striving, and I think that's where the blocking is, and you know, just to let that go, and just be present, that when you do go outside and you walk up the road, that you're just doing that, and then that is your time, yes. and that's where you're at. That's what I feel. You yeah. have all these aims. Yes. If one could just cut out all the striving and just be present to where they're at the moment. Yes, excellent, excellent. And that's why Christ, for example, said, be ye perfect. He didn't say, become perfect. You need to go to the Portman School and get a few elocution lessons. And he didn't give you a whole list of it. He said, be perfect. What does that imply if he said, be ye perfect? You are already. I mean, these wise men and women are telling us over and over again in all sorts of ways. And we say, yeah, 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 but, you know, how am I going to pay the mortgage this month? Or, yeah, 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 but he's got a bigger car than me. They're saying, the car, forget the car and, and clothing, and I forget it all. Be perfect. So that kind of puts it up to the mind because our common experience is contrary to that. Somebody says, you've put on weight and all of a sudden, you know, you're devastated. And it's just the body that's got a little bit bigger. 
That's all. So maybe a little bit of work needs to be done and take a few inches off or a couple of kilos off or a stone off. That's fine, that's just the body. You're still perfect. You touched on the subject earlier, does the ego have a function? It does have a function, but it's nothing like what we use it for. For example, it's very good for starting off, you know, for, for getting us up and getting us out there and doing something in the absence of anything else. I am repugnant. Well, a very strong ego isn't necessarily the same thing as confidence. Somebody who's quietly confident might not be bound by their ego at all. There might be a quiet confidence. You know, when all these things fall into place, why would you need to worry? You can handle anything. Now, you don't have to brag about it, but you could quietly handle whatever the world might throw at you and deal with it in the best way, according to your ability and nature and what's needed. You can use the right measure and use your intellect to decide what needs to be done and prioritize and attend to that and do it fully. And there would be a certain confidence that would come with that. A little bit like, you might say, if there's a bird on a branch, he can be quietly confident because he can fly. You know, there might be a wild storm, the lightning, the branch might fall, but he can fly. So it's not the same as ego at all. But with everything in its proper place, in the body, mind and heart, there absolutely would be a confidence, but it would be a totally different order to ego. Really a, sort of a the ego, well, it might be useful to get you to do something. So you might have gone to a philosophy talk to learn something so that you could impress your mates or something like that. But once you're there, the other aspects of mind can come into play. And the danger with ego is it takes over and it gets totally out of hand. I think the work for us would be to minimize the ego at every opportunity, not to take things personally and be oversensitive and to see what the effect of claiming things is and saying me and mine. So I'd suggest that would be the work initially, just to minimize ego, turn the attention out. All the things that we identified was healthy for the mind, discursive mind, turn it out, give it the attention to what's in front of us, what needs to be done, and then go and do it. The ego might come in and say, aren't I great? I picked up a piece of litter and nobody even asked me. So that's fine. Let it come and go. And So what needs to be done now? And do that. Thank you. When do you want to survive? It does. It wants to survive and it wants to be preserved and protected and cultivated and nurtured. And it kind of orchestrates things in that regard. I mean, you might notice sometimes if you're ever feeling miserable, you know, if somebody's done me some wrong, I can sort of wallow in it and stew in it. And, you know, two days later, I'm feeling so much more miserable and, you know, I'm kind of justifying everything. And I could have been absolutely out of order, but the ego here, I'll never admit that. So that's what it can do. It can try to survive. But I think the thing to do would be with regard to discursive mind, turn the attention out. Ego is cultivated by attention turning in to me and thinking, you know, poor me or great me. Am I brilliant? Am I horrible? I'm awful. You know, and the attention is turned in. We miss what's in front of us. Life passes us by. And all we've done is we've fed ego and cultivated an even more active discourse of mind. We've missed what's in front of us, haven't applied reason. Everything gets out of measure. We don't call our friends back. We forget somebody's birthday and... I have every right in the world because I'm feeling very sorry for myself and I'm going through a difficult time and you just have to give me a break, will you? Sort of thing. So that's the way it can go. So the thing to do is just turn the attention out, absolutely out all the time. The ego is not separate from the mind. It's a process in the mind. It's a process of claiming. And therefore you wish to survive. That's the point I find. Uh, 
But it's like becoming attached to a, a football team. I remember when I was in school, in primary school, everybody followed a football team. Who do you follow? Well, I don't know. So I had to pick somebody. So I picked Liverpool, as most people seem to. So for years I supported Liverpool. And if ever they won, I said, yes, great. If ever they lost, it, oh. it's, it's just identification. It's so subtle, it can happen so easily. I was a while ago at a meal with a big bunch of people and they asked me to pick the wine. You know the way they do that? I think they do it because they don't know one wine from another. Neither do I. So I picked a wine I picked a white wine. And the guy beside me said, uh, oh, you're doing quite right. I would have thought you would have been more cultured. Would have, you would have been a red wine sort of chap. And for ages afterwards, I only ordered red wine and drank red wine. <laughs> so that's what the ego can do. It's very, very subtle. And for the majority of cases, it's absolutely ridiculous and it's such a waste. Would you recognize that? So the thing to do is see what's in front of you for what it is, keep the attention turned out, do what needs to be done, participate fully, enjoy it, to minimize the ego, that would be the key. Because the route to the chief aim of human life is not through the ego. My next question was, what do you believe Yeah, that is the question, isn't it? So if you're faced with, what will I do if I win the lotto, or what is the chief aim of human life? Imagine going through life and not actually knowing. Imagine having a car and just driving around and not knowing ever where that you're meant to go somewhere or what you're meant to do with it. What sort of a life would that be? Socrates said an unexamined life was not worth living. And we're busy with mortgages and apartments and properties in Bulgaria and interest rates and the summer sales and very busy, a lot to do and things to get and looking forward to my holiday and be happy then. So that's the question. Even if we do get the body, mind and heart in good shape, what do we do with it then? It's like, what was the ad? Where do you want to go today? Microsoft or something? And it's all there. You can do anything. So what are you going to do? Where do you want to go? So that is the question. And you want an answer? <laughs> what do you think the answer would be? What is the chief aim of human life? Would you think it makes sense never to face that question or answer that question, to go through life and never to see what it was all for. Absolutely senseless to do that. Which I suspect is why you all came here and took time out of, from whatever you were doing. Well, that might be part of it, yeah. Might be part of it. Even with regard to asking the question, what sort of shape would we be in to even ask the question, never mind attempt to answer it, if we feed on EastEnders and... Carnation Street and Chinese takeaway three nights a week and you know we work ourselves to death and then go absolutely bonkers on holiday and we keep all our money for ourselves and you know if that's what we do what sort of shape would we be in to face this sort of question yeah not in good shape but there are things that we do and that's why it is important to try and get the body mind and heart in some sort of shape and to feed it on things that are for example positive instead of negative and get a little bit of action, activity, and movement in the body so we can do things. And then what are you going to do? Well, do things that are conducive to whatever direction you want to go in. That's what the answer is. To truly live life. To truly live life to the full, whatever that might mean. So what would that mean? So you live life to the full, to what end? So that what? I mean, so you, you keep your car in perfect shape. One of my neighbours washes and polishes it every weekend. It bottles and I'm sure it's fine. I'm sure all his tires have the right pressures and the right oil and everything. So that what? There are lots of ways to approach this. I propose that attempting to answer this question is part of it. Facing the question is part of it. Finding out what the purpose is.
Socrates said he didn't know. He said he didn't know anything. And he said, we've been a very wise man. He asked around and he went to the oracle at Delphi. Inscribed over the entrance to the oracle at Delphi is what was said to be the sum of all human knowledge and wisdom. And what did it say? It said, know thyself. That's all it said. Know thyself. Shakespeare said, to thine own self be true. They often speak about life being a journey. It's not a journey to get anywhere. You get to where you always are in the first place, but you just didn't realize it. So you don't have to wait till you're 30 or 50 or 80 or have a degree or, you know, get three philosophy classes and four karate black belts. And it's not a matter of ticking all the boxes. There's something else that doesn't necessarily have to involve the passage of time. It doesn't have to be a certain age or a certain job. None of us have to change our jobs. Or a realized man or woman is, is the term given to somebody who knows this, who knows the truth about themselves and the world and doesn't forget. We forget. I mean, I might be nice and cool and calm one minute, but scrape my car on the way out and all of a sudden I've lost it. And I think it's real and I think you're in trouble now and you've done it on purpose and my whole world collapses and becomes very small. And I forget. I forget everything. It's like when you lose your temper, you forget everything, don't you? So realize man or woman, they don't forget. They know the truth and they always know. I am the self-seated in the hearts of all beings. I am the beginning and the life and I am the end of them all. Who said that? Sounds like Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth and the life. It's very similar. Krishna said that. Imagine, how can they both be saying something like that? Can they both be right? How could they both be right? What could they be talking about? What does the I refer to? It's you. Yeah. It's you. It's not the body, the mind, the heart. It's you. You are the light of the world. You are the self-seat in the hearts of all beings. You are the beginning and the life and the end of them all. That's what they tell us. Is there a definitive answer to that question? What the chief aim of human life is? Well, there would be lots of answers to the question from lots of traditions, and we might even have our own understanding of it. But I would propose, and this being a talk about the use of the mind, what we often use the mind for is, yet again, speculating on how I'm going to spend the lotto when I win it for 20 minutes. You know, and we think that's interesting and useful application of the mind. And all the while, we might never engage in a question like this at all. So it's suggested that if we're using the mind for base activities, then we'll have no experience or understanding of something like this. We mentioned the spiritual aspect of the human being earlier, which might be the biggest aspect of all, and yet we spend so much time consumed in getting the body right and then getting the mind right and how I feel today. And we get so caught up in that we forget about the big question. So definitive answers would often be suggested, but most traditions would encourage us to seek this answer for ourselves. Lots of traditions and scriptures and poems and, and so on, they would encourage us to do that. Shakespeare, he said, and this above all else. What did he say after that? For thy known self be true. And this above all else. Now he didn't mince his words and he didn't use words lightly. So all the traditions would have way of encouraging us in this direction but they all seem to hinge on something like that it's all about knowing who I am a little bit like our diagram early on of all the various instruments they all serve 
the owner. But who's the owner? Who's the owner of this body, mind and heart? If I don't know who that is, it can happen that you wake up when you're 30 or 50 or 80 and wonder what happened in your life, where did it go, what was it all about? Because you were so busy. When you talk about the measured use of the senses, yes. are they for each individual or are they kind of more universal? There would be some universal principles involved, but the measure would be different for each. Just as the measure of sleep would be different for each person. Some people could get by on four or five hours. Some people would genuinely need a little bit more. And the same with the senses, or engaging or indulging in the senses. You know, maybe having one chocolate after a meal might be just perfect. Now, because of the taste of it and the ego and attachment and desire, we might go for two or three or four. Maybe some people could handle two or three or four. Some people, one would be too much. So the measure would be different for everybody. However, the mix of sattva, rajas and tamas, the effect of those would universally be true. You will find that people in general will say they need a bit of tamas at the end of the day in order to go to sleep. Now how they might do that might be a little bit different. It might take some person an hour and a half to wind down if they've had a very busy day. Or somebody else, if they've had a, a kind of a steady measure day, you know, maybe five minutes and brushing their teeth and they're out for the count. So the measure would be different for each person. We will know the measure if we're there for it. You might find sometimes, say if you're driving somewhere, at the end of the drive you might suddenly realise that your knuckles are white and your fists are clenched because you were driving in a very tense way, because you weren't aware of it at the time. So the measure of effort there would be too much, but we aren't aware of it. So our level of awareness wasn't sufficient to help us out. But if we were, if somebody said, look, just look at your hands, you say, oh, right, and we might be able to let go a little bit. It would all be to do with how the mind is operating, with the discursive mind connected to the senses in the present. Then we can see what's happening, and we can see how much effort or what we're engaging in or indulging in, and then we'll have some sense of the measure. You can apply whatever you've learned in the first half right now, because the chances are having sat there, I know what it's like, there could be dozen questions, but in the mind is playing away all the different aspects. Isn't the chief aim varies so much from person to person? Well, I would propose that the chief aim of human life would be universally true and would apply to each and every person and would not be different from one person to the next. But it doesn't work out like that. Well, it might not work out like that because we take on aims or, or crusades or ambitions. But what we will find, well, you can let me know if this is true, what we will find is even if there is a desire for something, to do something or achieve something, once you get it, what happens? Do you find that you're blissfully happy then thereafter? Or is there maybe a moment or two of satisfaction and then, right, what's next, what do I want now? could only answer that at one level, like, you know, I mean... But what's your experience when there's a desire for something and you attain that thing? Is there then eternal bliss or happiness? A certain amount of satisfaction. A certain amount of satisfaction, but it's short term. Yes. And all that has to happen is a knock on the door or a little whinge in the back or a pain in the tooth mm -hmm. or an ad on the TV and all of a sudden I want something else. It seems to be universally true that acquiring things or attaining things or achieving things does not bring this happiness that we seek. And yet we're fooled. And it starts quite early. I came across this philosophy business a little bit late in my life, but I've been watching my children 
And at one point, one of my sons wanted a DS, this Nintendo DS console that you can plug different games in. And he wanted one game, a Mario game. He said he'd be happy when he got that. And he'd save up all his money and all the money he was ever going to get to get this Nintendo and the Mario game. And he got it. And it was great. Played it for ages. But then there was a Mario Part 2. And then there was a FIFA 08. And then there was a... He wanted two games then, not just one. He thought he'd be happy with two. And he got two. But now he's got like 20. And he's on to something else. So even at that age it starts. And I'm still at it. I think if I get my car serviced and if I get the mortgage paid off, I think I'll be happy then. Would that be fair to say? It just does not happen. It never happens. And the reason for that is because we're trying to satisfy the self with things that satisfy the body or the mind or the heart. And as per the talk, if it's true that we're not the body or the mind or the heart, then nothing that pleases the body will bring true satisfaction to me. So no matter what quality of oil or petrol or air, or if I put medical grade oxygen in the tires of my car, it will make no difference whatsoever to me. So in the same way, acquiring things for the body or the mind or even a feeling in the heart will not bring about this happiness we seek. The Shankaracharya, who's a man that the school of philosophy goes to for guidance, at one point said, in the worldly setup, people go to work to earn money. And they want to earn money to buy goods and services. And they want goods and services for the pleasure that they bring. But the wages, the goods, or the derived pleasures do not bring about the peace of the self. And sooner or later the inquiry will turn to philosophy or inquiring after truth. So sooner or later, because if it's true that none of these things bring happiness or satisfaction, how long are we going to keep trying before we start asking the proper questions? Does that make sense? Does everybody ponder that question to the same extent, do you think? Everybody who's born, or does it really depend on your own natural makeup? But not everybody considers that question, no. And some people, it might never have occurred to them. Other people, if you suggest it to them, they say, what are you talking about? Listen, the match is on in five minutes. Can we come back to that? Liverpool are playing or something. That's part of the beauty of the creation. There's a lot of variety and... If we were as smart as we thought we were, I think we would learn an awful lot faster because there seems to be no end of, like, I get the TV, now I want a plasma TV, now Sony have some new TV which is better than plasma, and we seem to repeatedly get caught up in, in that process of wanting things. There will come a time, and even in the course of an ordinary day, there might be a little spark of a question, an idea, you know, is that all there is? Or you might suddenly realise that something you worried tremendously about yesterday, and today all of a sudden is insignificant. You might say, God, will I ever learn and see things in their proper perspective and context while they're happening? That would be a, a real success. Speaking as a teacher, I'm wondering, can you see any time soon when this might be introduced into primary schools, schools in general? I don't know. I know some schools do have discover yourself type topics and classes where they will explore slightly different topics of discussion to the normal English and geography and so on. But my opinion now, it would be in Ireland certainly, there seems to be a separation of, well a little bit like state and church, there would be a definite separation. The secular is going one way and the spiritual aspect is 
there's a definite reluctance to try and introduce it or impose it. Nearly as if there's a denial of it. So all the attention would be on success in the world and exams and and achievements and salary and aim and promotion and so on. I would say it's universally true no matter what level of promotion you get, there, there still isn't the satisfaction that we crave. There isn't this bliss or this happiness that we want. It just doesn't come with that. So I don't think the system is geared to that. I can't say I blame it in a way because it's a pretty personal type of inquiry. Not everybody's interested in, in inquiring after who am I. And it will only really work when there's a genuine inquiry. Is that not due to lack of awareness, though? It could be, but I'd say it's more to do with the individual. There would be some people who do have a question, and maybe whatever environment they're in just doesn't offer any solution. Well, there are some people who just do not rest until they meet somebody who says something to them and gives them another tip or a lead or somewhere they could look up or a website or a book or somebody to talk to. And some people might be searching for years before they come across something that gives them any sort of direction in which to take this. So I think if there was genuine earnestness with regard to spiritual inquiry and endeavour, then nothing would get in your way. Because nothing would satisfy you. It is our nature to be satisfied. If it's true that we're not the body and the mind and the heart, but we have them, then we're so much bigger than that. And if that's true, then nothing that satisfies something as small as the body can really satisfy me. And that's why it doesn't happen. So no amount of bodily pleasures, whether it's a biscuit or a chair or a first-class seat on an aeroplane, will not bring about this piece of the self. So I think it's a personal type of inquiry. And so a lot of parents in the School of Philosophy had that same question, and they did start a primary school in Dublin. And there would be a heavy emphasis on the study and application of philosophy in the practical sense. Like they would pause briefly before a class just to bring the mind into the present. And then they'd pause at the end of the class just to let everything go so that you're free to go on to the next activity. You know, it's like where you take one job into the next one and you wish you had done something differently. So with a little bit of bringing the mind into the present at certain times during the day, you can keep things clear. There are schools that do put an emphasis on it, but mainstream education, I don't think it's on the agenda at the moment. There's nothing to stop a particular individual. I do know of teachers who are in the school of philosophy, not the John Scotus school, and they would often just have a, a little quiet moment where they get the children to fall still. I know a nurse, and she always does a little pause with her patients before she takes their blood pressure. She just tells them to relax and just listen for a minute, and blood pressure drops. Thank you. Maybe just as a slight follow-on to that, do some people naturally know the chief aim of their life, or the chief aim of human life? Why do some people have to strive to find it, whereas more people seem to be quite contented? I don't know if very many of us are contented, certainly in the world, with worldly things. What we're promised by all the wise is that we're not lacking anything. We have it all already. We're born with this birthright where we're already pure, perfect and complete. But we just forget that. And thinking that we're not pure and perfect and complete, we then go looking for things to complete us. But it will never happen. So it's all that's happened is we've forgotten that we're perfect already. 
and some people not forget them. There are some people who would be more enlightened, or yeah, more enlightened, or realised men or women who know what they are, and they never mistake themselves for being the body or the mind or the heart, or they never become attached. They always remember. Now there aren't many. It's a pretty rare thing to to come across a realised man or woman, but they are around. You'll often hear of people giving a talk. I don't mean this one now, but you'll hear people giving a maybe a talk in Dublin and. 4,000 people could turn up to hear somebody speak. Spoke the power of now, what was the name of the speaker? He, he gave a talk, and I think 4,000 people turned up. Uh, I don't know wh whether these are realized men or women, but there's a lady, Mother Anna, the hugging saint, and I think 25,000 people in Ireland turned up for a hug from this woman, which is uh, pretty amazing. So there are some people, and Thank God for that. I mean, they do remind us about what's true, and they're available if we have questions. Do you not think there's people, say, who aren't famous or who aren't philosophers that have kind of become fully realized as well? Absolutely. It's just people living their own quiet lives. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Probably far greater number. The mark of it would be that they would be fulfilling the chief aim of human life, and there would be total satisfaction. And you would see some qualities about them that, even yeah. in small things. Because sometimes you come across people and they just seem naturally wise and kind of at ease with themselves. Yes, and content. Yeah. And yeah. they leave you leaving with a, a sense of well-being and peacefulness. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I would propose that we can all be like that even for a short time. There can be these yeah, occasional moments of happiness where we just happen to come into the present and connect with everything and everything's okay. Now we don't have any more money than we did that morning and we still have to go to court next week for the summons and all that sort of stuff. But right there and then, everything is all right. You know what that's like? Well, it's just like that. Where nothing has changed, you're not any taller or shorter or richer or poor, but everything is perfect. Well, that's what it's like. And the possibility is it's like that every moment. We just have to connect with it and remember. Not think that we're, we're lacking anything or missing anything. Well, it's, it's 9.30. I'm very happy to leave it there. If you're happy to leave it there? Now, I would also be very happy if you're left with a lot of questions. I think that would be an evening very well spent, where you somehow now have a question in this area. Well, what is it all about? Whatever direction you go in, if the, the, some inquiry in this area here would be very healthy. In fact, it is proposed that that would be the true use of the mind, to apply it to that task. Who am I? That that would be the true use of the mind. Wouldn't that be good to know that? Well, I'm happy to leave it there. Thank you all very much. Do we own our minds? Well, you do in the same way that you might own a car or the body. There's certainly a, a relationship between what I think this particular body is and this mind and this heart and I try to educate the mind in a certain way and it has certain likes and dislikes and I think that's mine. However, in truth, if truth be told, it's probably no more mine than the car is mine. As they say, you can't take it with you. One way to look at it is that this physical body, for example, while I think it's different to all those bodies down there, really, they're all made of the same stuff. They're all made of earth and they all arose out of earth 
they're in a particular shape and form for a while, then they'll all go back to universal Earth and then they'll spring up again in different shapes and forms. So it appears that the same applies to all aspects in the creation. Just as what I think is an individual mind, it could be that there's a universal mind. So, but I have the use of body, mind and heart for a time. So it's how I use it and how I apply the talents that I've got for that time. So I think it's mine. The danger happens is when, not just when I think it's mine for starters, uh, and somebody insults the mind and says, God, I, that, that was a stupid thing to say. And if the mind did say something stupid, maybe it was only half listening and it gave a silly answer. Somebody says, that's stupid. If I think I'm the mind or the mind is mine, I will kind of take offense at that. I won't like somebody telling me that was a stupid thing to say. I think he's telling me I'm stupid. But it's not the same. It's due to attachment, it's this process of identification or ego that we become very attached to this body, mind and heart. We have to let them all go. Even going to bed at night, we have to let everything go in order to go to sleep. I can't hold on to anything. Perhaps they're not as much ours as we think they are. I mean, if, if you think your car is yours, just try to hold on to it and let nothing happen to it. It's going to go its own way. It's going to gradually rust and fall apart and there's nothing we can do to stop that. So it's not really ours. We have the use of it for a time. And what we do with it will make a difference. But this really would be the question.